Last week, the world lost a great inventor and great innovator in the computer industry, Clive Sinclair. Today, we'll talk about his legacy and his impact on personal computers. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. Rebecca, this week we're talking about Clive Sinclair. People are mourning his loss last week. He was a great innovator and a great inventor from the United Kingdom. Can you tell us a little bit about his early life? Clive Sinclair was born during World War II, 1940, near Richmond, England. His family sent him and his mother away to stay in Devon, which wound up being a really good choice because their family home in Richmond was destroyed in a bombing raid. Uh, Unfortunately, his father had some significant financial problems starting around when Clive was 10, and it led to a lot of school changes, um, and so not a lot of consistency. Uh, Growing up, it was said that Clive preferred adults and didn't play very many sports, but did very well in mathematics in school. Clive finished his schooling at 18. He decided not to go on to university and started his businesses. Um, His first business was selling electronic kits by mail order. He designed a simple circuit that folks could build and ordered all the different components and then put them together as a kit and mailed them out to folks who wanted them. He also wrote handbooks um, and technical books that were published for starting in 1959. And these were about these electronic kits or building circuits, pretty technical topics as opposed to light fun reading, I guess you could say. Um, In 1961 is when he founded Sinclair Radionics. And even from the beginning, Radionics had some challenges raising money and capital to advertise his inventions, but he really wasn't deterred. He took another job as a technical editor of a publication called Instrument Practice, and that helped to, I guess, keep him afloat while he was working on his inventions for Sinclair Radionics. Even uh, in the beginning of his career, he seemed to be interested in in the miniaturization of electronics. So how can you make circuits and things smaller, more handheld and user-friendly in that way? So I think that was pretty forward-looking of him, especially nowadays when we think about the size of our phones and, um, and the different devices that we use and how powerful small devices can be. And he was a pioneer in miniaturizing some devices that we take for granted today, right? Um, what were some of those? Yeah, his first success was actually a handheld calculator that was really slim and could fit in a pocket. That was the first uh, really major success for Sinclair Radionics. Um, They also worked on a little mini TV, a handheld TV, or a pocket-sized TV. Uh, It wouldn't be what we would consider, I think, pocket-sized today, but for the time, it definitely was. And so working on calculators, he had some experience with digital electronics, So he was really building one of the first very slim calculators. I understand Japanese companies started making competing calculators. Yeah, that's right. And it's uh, kind of a trend through Clive Sinclair's career is that he would create um, and invent devices or electronics that, and then others would 
iterate off of those, but he was pretty forward thinking. Unfortunately, uh, just because he was forward thinking and had cool inventions, it didn't always work well for his business. And he had a really tough episode in Sinclair Radionics with uh, the creation of the Black Watch, which was a digital watch. Unfortunately, it was inaccurate, the watch itself, um, and it led to a huge financial loss for Sinclair Radionics. And this was, again, a pioneering device, a pioneering digital device. He had created one of the first slim calculators, and then this was one of the first digital watches. Yep, and if you look at pictures of it, it looks really modern. The black watch was developed in the 70s, but to a modern user like us, it actually looks pretty cool. Unfortunately, though, it wasn't accurate, so it did not do well, um, and it actually led to a really tough decision for for Clive Sinclair and his business. And he wound up giving up a 43% interest in his company to the National Enterprise Board, which is pretty much giving up control or a big portion of his company to the British government. And you and I watched a video, which we'll talk about a little later, called Micro Men, which was largely about Clive Sinclair. And it seemed they portrayed that he really resented having to deal with government bureaucrats. Yeah, he really throughout his career saw himself as an inventor and I think really chafed against the idea of some someone else kind of trying to control that process in any way. So this happens with the British government, him having to sell this interest. What happens next for him? He actually makes plans to leave Sinclair Radionics and he joined what was then called the Science of Cambridge Company. Um, and that was a company that was founded by... Uh, former Sinclair Radionics employee as kind of a escape hatch for Clive Sinclair. And that's where he started his work on personal computers. Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about his work in personal computers? Yeah, so then he formed a new company called Sinclair Research, and they developed some very influential personal computers in the early 1980s in the United Kingdom that also got duplicated throughout Europe with a lot of clone manufacturers taking up the same design. The first computer was a ZX80. Now, we have a previous episode on the personal computer revolution that I'll link to in the show notes. People should know that by 1980, which was when the ZX80 launched, there already had been five years of personal computers being sold by companies like Apple and Commodore and Radio Shack. So it's not like the personal computer was a new concept. What was really revolutionary about the ZX80, the ZX81, and the ZX Spectrum, which are the three computers that Sinclair Research had a lot of success with, is just how low cost they were. The ZX80 and the ZX81 sold for less than 100 pounds. Now, this is in a world where an Apple II would cost you over 1,000 pounds generally with all the accessories that you might need with it. So this was really quite inexpensive, and it really brought computing to the British masses. How did he do it? Well, it was still a nice-looking case that the computer was bundled in with a built-in keyboard, not unlike the Apple II, a keyboard that was highly criticized because it had kind of a chiclet design and had a mesh plastic thing kind of on top of it that made the keys kind of spongy. But aside from the keyboard... The rest of it used pretty standard components, and the key was that they just used as few components as possible. It had a Z80 microprocessor, which was a very common microprocessor at the time. The two most common microprocessors in personal computers at the time were things like the 6502, which was in the Apple II and the Commodore line. 
and the Z80, which was in the TRS-80 line in the United States, and the ZX line in England, and eventually actually the Game Boy as well. So these were very common microprocessors at the time, the Z80 line, and it had a very small amount of memory. Memory was very expensive in the early 80s, and this is one of the main way that they kept costs down. To get it under 100 pounds, this is hard to believe, it was even low for the time, the ZX80 had only one kilobyte of RAM. That's a crazy small amount of memory. Comparable computers of the time, like the IBM PC that came out in 1981 and the standard Apple II at that time, had 16 kilobytes of RAM. So this was really a very, very small amount. We talked about in a previous episode, what is a byte that I'll link to in the show notes, just what a kilobyte is. But if you're not familiar, it's enough information to store just a thousand characters, literally a thousand letters of text. So it's a very small amount of RAM. So these were not serious business computers. These were designed for a home audience. And they didn't even have sophisticated video circuitry. The ZX80 and the ZX81, the first two in the line, only had black and white graphics, and they didn't really have much customized support for things like games. They really could only do text and some very primitive graphics in kind of a text-like mode. So you'd be surprised that they would actually sell well, but there was actually, as Clive Sinclair detected, a hunger in the UK and the rest of Europe for very inexpensive home computers. What they did have is they had a built-in BASIC interpreter. And BASIC was really the lingua franca of home computers at the time. So it was still enough to start learning BASIC and start inputting some simple BASIC programs that you might get in a magazine into the computer. And they sold millions of these very inexpensive computers. And they really hit it even bigger with the next one in the line, the ZX Spectrum. When the ZX Spectrum came out, it added color capabilities and more memory, and it only cost a little bit more. It started at an introductory price of 125 pounds, which even at that time, accounting for inflation and everything, is still very inexpensive and way below the price of most competing computers. So what Clive Sinclair really brought to the public was a fully assembled, ready-to-be-plugged-into-a-TV product that was so inexpensive that almost any British family could afford it. And this is also what led it to be very popular in clone form in Eastern Europe. In Eastern Europe, of course, economic conditions were worse than in the UK. And so by having a design that used only standard components and no custom circuitry, it was able to be produced at a very low cost. And so these computers became very kind of standard issue design for the computers of Eastern Europe. So Clive Sinclair and his vision of using standardized components, very little custom circuitry, and the bare minimum to get basic across so that people can use it, was very influential not just in the UK, but also throughout Eastern Europe. And they ended up selling millions. The ZX Spectrum alone sold 5 million, and that's not even accounting for all the clones, and there were many clones. So this was really a huge impact for the home computer industry. But these were not really true competitors to like the IBM PC or the Apple II, which were at the higher end of the market. And the ZX Spectrum, I should add, was also very popular for games. The first two models only having black and white graphics were not really that compelling for games and also with such limited amounts of memory. But the ZX Spectrum led to a whole games industry in the UK. And a lot of people who started programming on the ZX Spectrum 
ended up becoming influential in the games industry in the UK. And you, some people trace the beginnings of a lot of the UK's software development industry to the ZX Spectrum and the influence that it had. So what happens next? What about the QL? Right. So they came up with another model after the ZX Spectrum that was a higher end model. They tried to go up market and it was called the QL stood for Quantum Leap. And by the way, Clive Sinclair was very much the face of the company. He would do television commercials for the Spectrum and then for the QL as well. But they went a bit too upmarket. They came out with this product called the QL that was too expensive and too sophisticated in some ways for their previous home users. And it had some bugs and some issues, and it didn't sell anything like the previous generation of computers. While the ZX81 and the Spectrum sold millions, the QL only ended up selling 150,000 units. And that's despite having a much more sophisticated microprocessor in the 6A008, similar microprocessor to what was in the first Apple Macintosh, having a lot more memory and having a much more sophisticated operating system. It still didn't do well. So they weren't really able to make the transition to upmarket. Some people say that there were some quality issues with the machines. But then the other issue was that really the IBM PC was beginning to dominate. And people were looking to the IBM PC and its clones in that higher echelon of the market. And so it was maybe even a little bit too late to really get a footing now that the IBM PC and its clones were starting to make it big. And by the way, we talked about the IBM PC in a previous episode called Why Was the IBM PC Such a Big Deal? And I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. The one thing that's important about the QL is that a very influential person got his start on the QL, and that's Linus Torvalds, the creator of Linux. And the QL was the computer that he really first started doing low-level programming with. And so it had a big impact on him. You can read more about that in his book, Just for Fun, which is an autobiographical book about how he developed Linux. So Rebecca, unfortunately, the QL led to the demise of Sinclair Research as a serious computer company. But what happens next for Clive Sinclair? So Clive Sinclair turns his attention to an electronic car, personal vehicle called the uh, Sinclair C5. This was a real uh, passion project, I think, for him and something he was he was interested in throughout these other products and computers being launched. Unfortunately, the C5 did not do very well. Um, it only sold around 12,000. Um, it just didn't take off the way Clive Sinclair had hoped or imagined. I think honestly, it was just too soon. If he was a few decades decades later, probably, well, one, the technology would be better, but I think uh, the market would be more interested in it. And that really, that failure really started to lead to the end of Sinclair Research. Eventually, it just became a much smaller company. It was Clive Sinclair and like two other people. At its peak in the 80s, it had 130 people working, working for him. So it was quite a reduction in size. Um, and they, and he continued to focus on uh, personal vehicles and personal transport. Um, they did try to create another uh, electronic vehicle called the X1, but it never reached the market. So unfortunately, he passed away last week. What would you say his legacy is? Well, there's some honors that he was awarded throughout his life, including being knighted in 1983, which is a pretty big deal in England. What I learned about him and the way I see him is really as an inventor. I don't think that any one product necessarily was like 
his passion or the thing that he wanted his legacy to be, but really what what's the next product and what is the next thing that he's going to be inventing? Um, he really was an inventor and an entrepreneur more than I would say like a computer scientist. Yeah, and it seems like he was not a great necessarily businessman. He was more, like you said, great entrepreneur, great at starting things, not necessarily so great at managing them later on. Mm-hmm. So he passed away, unfortunately, last week, and you and I, in preparation for this episode, watched a BBC dramatization of his life at kind of the time of the computers coming out, the ZX80, ZX81, ZX Spectrum, the QL, called Micromen. He actually participated in helping with the creation of the documentary, but then later criticized that it wasn't very accurate. But it was really about the rivalry between his company, Sinclair Research, and another British computer company called Acorn that would eventually lead to ARM, which is a company that came out with the microprocessor design that's now in all of our phones and tablets, and we've talked about in other episodes. So it's interesting. There was actually like quite a rivalry there in the British computer industry in the early 80s, and it wasn't clear who was going to set the standard, but ultimately American companies like Microsoft and IBM ended up setting the standard in the UK. But I don't know. What did you think about the Micromen dramatization? I think that it just reminds me of how, in some ways, small that community was of these folks who are really working hard to develop something and how revolutionary it was to think about getting a computer in everybody's home. Like, if we think about, even if they were just playing games on it, the way that that just introduced the British population to computers, that's a huge cultural shift that was started. Um, So there was Clive Sinclair's company, and then Acorn actually partnered to get computers in schools. And if you think about it, getting things in homes and schools, like that's really touching everybody. Yeah, and Acorn was actually started by a fellow who used to work for Clive Sinclair. So Clive Sinclair even had his impact on Acorn in, in quite a big way because he was kind of the mentor originally to the guy who started Acorn. So it's very interesting the impact that they were able to have without actually doing anything that was technically revolutionary. These computers were not using very advanced parts. They didn't have revolutionary software. They were basically pretty similar to a lot of the home computers on the market already from Apple or Commodore. In fact, they had less capabilities, but the key was just that they brought the price down so that these computers were accessible to everybody. And who knows how many software developers, hardware engineers would have never come into the field if it wasn't for bringing down the price. So it's interesting that sometimes the most revolutionary thing you can do is just make something less expensive. All right. Thanks for listening to us this week. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter? We're at Copec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye.